I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. All right, welcome back to a Wednesday, June 21st, 2023 edition here on the Chase Most Podcast, somber June 21st, 2023 edition here on the program. Tennessee Vols baseball team, uh, their season came to a close late last night. Uh, 5-0 to very good LSU Tigers baseball team that ended up being who they lost to both uh, in the double elimination uh, portion of the College World Series. Um, great season for the Vols by and large, great pitching, elite pitching throughout, uh, some really, really amazing, great moments, uh, for, uh, those Tennessee Vols baseball team and very different than last year, obviously offensively versus, uh, what we saw this year and just how, uh, the bats went cold, uh, one final time for, uh, for this group, but, uh, made it to the final five, um, preseason number two, that never felt right. Um, with how much they lost and how many guys they were replacing in the lineup from a year ago. But, uh, hey, you're in it. You're in the final five. Um, make a New Year's Six Bowl. Make the Sweet 16 um, all across the board. Uh, just an elite year for uh, for Tennessee athletics. Um, so, hey, it's football time in Tennessee. What, 70 days? And speaking of football time in Tennessee, we've got college football full ride with Valley University of North Georgia alumni Matt Green to talk all things college football on the Wednesday edition here on the program. We talk about the 2024 SEC schedule, uh, our thoughts on that, and where uh, where we thought some schools uh, got off easy, some schools got a really really tough slate. A um, and Arkansas, uh, Florida, Georgia a little bit. Um, and Oklahoma were some big ones that stood out to us on the 2024 scheduling front. Um, we also talk about, hey, um, what do, what's more likely? Played a little game like that uh, in, with some fun college football questions involving USC and Iowa, Arkansas and Tennessee, Florida and Florida State, and then uh, the best quarterback, uh, best new quarterback in the SEC and who that might be here in 2023. Um, all that and more with Matt Green on today's edition of the Full Ride on the Chase Thomas Podcast. Also, we've got uh, Drew Goodman, uh, play by play. Oh, wow, uh, the TV play-by-play voice of uh, the Colorado Rockies. So it was a lot of fun talking with Drew. 
and getting some awesome insight into the state of the Colorado Rockies. Um, obviously, rough series against my Atlanta Braves over the weekend, but Ryan McMahon turning into a star. Um, comparisons between him and Nolan Arenado. Diaz at catcher, why he's in the all-star uh, range, him and McMahon. Um, we also talk about uh, the veteran presence of Mike Moustakis, Chris Bryant, what's it looking like with him, with his injury, and what where he stands going forward. Um, and then the pipeline, Jordan Beck, Tennessee BFL legend, uh, rising up the ranks there in AA, uh, <clears throat> Fernandez, and a couple other guys, and why there's reason to be excited about uh, some of the guys coming up uh, from the farm in Colorado sooner rather than later. So a lot of fun here on this Wednesday edition of the Chase Most Podcast. Don't forget, folks, if you are not already subscribed and this is your first time checking out the show, first, thank you for checking out this very program. Uh, please, please, please make sure if you like today's episode that you leave this show a five-star rating and review uh, on your preferred podcast player, whether it's Apple, Spotify, or however you get your podcast. If you're already a subscriber and you haven't done so yet, please go ahead and take care of that today. It helps other people find the show, like I said, and helps this very show continue to grow. So if you could take care of that today, I would greatly appreciate it. As always, you can get in touch with the show. Any college questions you have for Matt or myself or any of other uh, our other uh, big-time shows here each and every day, you can get in touch with us on Twitter at twitter.com slash podchasethomas or email us at chasethomaspodcast at gmail.com. All right, Wednesday edition, Chase Thomas Podcast. Uncle Darren, let's go. Chase Thomas Podcast. The Chase Thomas Podcast. <laughs> um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast, where I'm still the aforementioned Chase Thomas coming to you live from Knoxville, Tennessee. It's hard to say everything's school HQ tonight, Matt Green. I'm, I'm feeling a little bit down. The Tennessee Volunteers, as we were recording this on a Tuesday, late on a Tuesday evening, eliminated by the LSU Tigers 5 to nothing, and the Vols finished 5th in this college baseball season overall. The last team eliminated before the Final Four here. Um, great season. Went way farther than they should have uh, to this point. Um, great pitching throughout. Should be better next year. Um, probably even a bet, maybe a potentially better rotation, definitely a better lineup. But when you're hitting 200 ish from super regionals on, it's really, really hard to keep winning baseball games. And, uh, Hey, that's baseball. When you're everything school HQ, that's how it works. You're just in it for all the big moments month after month. And one of these times it will go the Vols way. And, uh, unfortunately for the 2023 Tennessee baseball team, it was not this summer, but Hey, that's why football season right around the corner. Rowing, who knows? Lady softball next football year. Who season, knows? Softball, basketball, just mm-hmm. another another sport that they can be pretty good at, and that's uh, you know there's something to be said for that. It's uh, no I national championships, yeah. but um, they are definitely uh, competitive in every sport. Well, at least this voice- past year in football, it's been a while since they've been competitive in football. I think they were competitive two years ago under Hypel. They weren't great, but they were competitive. They're competitive. up on Georgia after the first bowl quarter. game. I guess is however we're using the word. I feel like they were they're like actual upper tier program yes. in most sports, but it's been a while since they were an upper tier football team. And but they're there right now. Twenty two. We'll see what happens moving forward. 
I, uh, I, I think things are looking up. Uh, I think things are looking up all across the board here. Jordan Burns, four-star out of Pace Academy, committing to the Vols today. Um, so it, the recruiting calendar, man, it is just uh, this summer. It's just every day you're monitoring and seeing who OVs and how all this is working and Florida filling up the boat, South Carolina filling up the boat, Georgia trying to fill up the boat. It's just it, it's kind of wild that this summer is now just when you want to get the majority of your class done um and uh every day you're just kind of watching and waiting to see uh how things are gonna go boo carter big four-star safety commits over the weekend michigan made a strong like push for him so tennessee class top 10 right now in 247 and that's just where you want to be you're not going to be fourth fifth third catch georgia in that regard if you're tennessee you just want to be in that top 10 uh blue chip ratio range um year over year so feeling good there uh, yeah, Florida's the one that's been killing it on the recruiting trail lately. Yeah, it just it goes to show you, really. It's just that this is why this recruiting calendar is just so out of whack because everything has just been sped up so much. So teams are having fifteen, sixteen commits now uh, in the summer, and you're expected to sign basically everybody in December. And so yeah. you're, if you're firing your coach, whatever's going on, like I feel like it puts you like two classes behind almost. Yeah, that's why like early signing day should be like August, August, um, and then the late signing day is right after the season, and then it's done. Like December is like the last the Mo, Mohicans type of deal. Like that that makes the like, most sense. It feels like that's how the players almost see it. Like mm. it, it feels like a lot of guys want to get this done before their senior year starts, mm. and so I don't know. It just it, every year it just seems to get we get. 20 that we get juniors sophomores it just gets uh accelerated like this guy who reclassified i'm, mm. I'm blanking on his name the was old it? miss quarterback from yeah florida. This, yeah committed to florida now he's class of 2025 to 2023 yeah it's yeah, wild that is just insane but i'm not even sure how that's possible <laughs> but uh say he, he finished a 5.34 gpa or something i like i know i wasn't a good student but i mean i don't even know how these numbers exist uh, but yeah, it's crazy. He like started, he finished high school classes as a freshman, like a real, a real TJ Henderson we got on our hands. Yeah, that wasn't me. That, uh, that was not me, Matt Green. Well, fellow University of North Georgia alumni, Matt Green, that is the voice you hear on that other end of this very show down there in Tequila, Georgia. Matt Green, good evening, sir. How are you? How's it going, man? I was, uh, mm. you know, watching the Bravos tonight, you know, they got a solid win, um, I was, I won't, I won't lie. I was, I was checking on Tennessee, just, mm-hmm. just, just peeping over there. See, uh, making sure that the Tigers were taking care of business and, uh, can't have any L- Tennessee national championships. So, uh, but yeah, n- uh, other than that, man, not much, just, just, uh, just hanging out, do, doing my thing. Matt Olson bombs. I will say with the Braves, I cannot stand the yellow patch. It's all I see. I don't know if you're used to it yet, the yellow ad on the corner of the jersey. Ronald Acuna got me used to just the bright yellow with the, with the Braves mm. uniform. But, uh, yeah, it really is. It's it's out there. And you see it's on different sleeves. Like for right-handed hitters, it's on one oh. side. The left-handed hitters, it's on. Like they're, they know what they're doing. It's terrible. It just, like I'm okay with ads on uniforms. It's just where we are across the sports and Major League Baseball, NBA. It'll come with NFL. But, like, I think it should be required that you have to match the uniforms. Like it has to blend in with the uniform. Now the NBA does that. Like all the NBA ads, they all match the actual uniform. 
But when you have this weird looking yellow black on this Atlanta Braves uniform, it it's all you see. Like even the Mets, their current one, it's blue. So it matches and all like either you have you have match or you can't be the ad. Like I don't know why. And there's some it's like some logos it's like can can pull it off. It's yeah. like this logo is just like a big ass yellow <laughs> rectangle on the on the sleeve of the jersey. Like it's not just like a letter or something. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's it is pretty bad, but I guess, you know, watching Premier League and yeah. stuff through the years, it's like you've kind of become numb to it, I guess. Now. That might be the case, Matt Green. Matt Green, how many uh, days are we until college football as the good folks are listening to this on their morning commute here on a Wednesday? We are 73 days away from college football. And in honor of 73 days, uh, we went to the FCS level on this one. Mm. Most receiving touchdowns in the history of FCS football. You, uh, you got you to guess for that. Terrell Owens? That or Jerry Rice. Correct. That would be, I've lost track of the Super Bowl numbers, but whatever Super Bowl MVP, Cooper Cup, oh. 73 career receiving touchdowns at Eastern Washington. Yeah, he absolutely hmm. tore up the FCS level, 6,400 yards. Like 70, his, his most touchdowns was actually his freshman year. He had 21 touchdowns. But, huh. yeah, 73 for his career, four-time All-American. Like, that's just an insane company. So, yeah, Cooper wow. Cup, 73 receiving touchdowns in college. I never would have guessed that. I would have guessed on the yardage, like he ate up uh, the yardage. It's kind of funny, like he's kind of the modern Jerry Rice anyway. Um, just with the way he plays and over the middle and just a sure-handed catch guy and just uh, he's just going to rack up the reception Rice catches. Award winner, as a matter of fact. Well, see, there you go. Like Cooper <laughs> Cup is uh, is legit, but I would never have guessed that he actually was the touchdown leader. Um, what was he? Eastern Washington? Did you say? Yeah. Yeah, are they the red field? I feel like they are always the red field. Yeah, the red field. Mm. What what would be the worst color field for a college football game to view for you? Is it the blue or is there a is it the red? Red's what would be the worst? Be up there, red's a way more harsh color. Mm. Like the the Boise State thing. Other than the fact like Boise State's cheating and they're <laughs> wearing all blue uniforms on a blue field, like. I feel like the blue is like an easy color to look at. Like the mm-hmm. red, I don't know how that wouldn't hurt your eyes after a while. Somebody who is it? Um, is it Eastern Michigan? Has like the gray field or That's something. That's Coastal like that? Carolina. They have the teal. They have the teal. Yeah. I, I want to say so. Someone's that's like green and gray. I feel hmm. like there's a a gray field out there. Or something. Something weird. Um, yellow's got to be the worst. There's no way you could do a yellow. No one can do a yellow. Yeah, yellow would be terrible. I guess also, I'm not sure about the gray thing because you'd have to have white hash marks. <laughs> and I'm not sure how you pull that off. Um, but yeah, that's why you can never do yellow. But I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm torn on the, um, like the novelty yeah. of Boise State and, and the fact that, like, are they, are they actually cheating? Is, is, this, <laughs> is this not against the rules? I'm actually kind of surprised in 2023 that these schools are still allowed to do that. I'm surprised it's not uniform across the board where it's like, hey, that was a cool gimmick when college ball wasn't that big, but now yeah. it's big and there's so many dollars involved now that like, yeah, you, the blue field, the gimmicky field colors have to go. Like we, we can't do this anymore. I'm actually and, uh, surprised. And I was correct, by the way, Reinerson Stadium, Eastern Michigan, they have a gray field. It's like a, like a solid, like not charcoal, but like a, a darker gray. 
Yeah, Charlie green, Batch coming the through. Green end zone and like a gray field. That's like the only Eastern Michigan guy I know. Who else was in Eastern Michigan? Eastern guy? Michigan, I can think of uh, Earl Boykins. Uh, oh. That's the only, uh, I don't think I can think of a football Eastern Michigan. God, I have no recollection of this gray field at all. This doesn't look that bad, though. It just looks like you're watching like an old-timey game. It, yeah, that's that wouldn't be bad to look at. Like yeah, for, that's not for bad. Four quarters, like the red, I couldn't, I couldn't handle that. No, the red, yeah, I couldn't do it. Um, well, there you go, Matt Green. It's funny because you you just never know uh, when news is going to break, when things are going to happen. And after we recorded the pod last Tuesday night for the Wednesday folks, of course, Wednesday the schedule release comes out and all that, and for the SEC for twenty twenty four and. We got we had a week though, which is the the plus side to this is we had a week to digest and review it, think about it, look at everybody's schedule, and get our thoughts together here. So let's hit the 2024 SEC schedule reactions portion of this very program, sir. My first question to you: the best schedule for success in 2024 is uh, is for who in your mind? I would probably say looking at it, for one, this these schedules are just awesome. And the event of the schedule release was just incredible. Like, why can't we do that like every year? Like that would just <laughs> they might, be, actually. That would be amazing. So I don't know. The biggest thing is I don't know how they're gonna like continue this in 2025 and everything. I just don't know how they're gonna keep so many of these rivalries that they did keep. Mm-hmm. Like we were talking about just one ones like Tennessee, Florida and and Georgia, Tennessee that like or even like a Florida LSU that could be like a, a, what am I trying to say? A, they're going to die from this, right? Mm. They're, uh, those, the rivals aren't going to last. So I was glad to see at least for 2024, they're not really sure what they're going to do in 2025. So for one, all of these schedules are just so good. Like mm. it's, there's not going to be a team. They're like, Oh, their, their schedule is easy. Their schedule is way too hard. Like, Everyone's basically going to be playing a gauntlet. I think the SEC might be geniuses. Like Brent, hmm. uh, Greg Sankey might be a genius for this whole thing because w- there was a lot of ridicule the SEC got for keeping it at eight games. But because there is kind of an upper tier and a lower tier to the SEC, and let's be honest, a lot of the lower tier is in the SEC East, probably the bottom three or four programs are historically or probably in the sec east now with with no divisions you actually see like if you're playing everyone's playing everybody like it's everyone's gonna have a gauntlet and then Mm -hmm. you're gonna see how amazing this is and then they're gonna give them a whole lot more money to play a ninth game um and they're just gonna finesse it perfectly (laughs) but all the way back to your question of who's got the easiest run i think texas a&m has Hmm. a like a manageable schedule like if you look at on the road, a lot of it depends on what happens with a couple of these programs, but like their road schedule that year, Auburn and Florida right now, like those are bottom of the sec type teams. Yeah. They could easily be top three or four sec teams by 2024. So it's a real wild card, but Auburn and Florida right now, aren't that tough considering where you got to go. It's really A&M's schedule is venues over actual teams. Because you look at Auburn, Florida, Mississippi State, and South Carolina, that's pretty manageable when you look at all these other schedules. Mm. But Jordan Hare, Ben Hill Griffin, 
why am I forgetting Williams Bryce and Davis mm-hmm. Wade Stadium? Like all of those have like their own certain like. I mean, it's the SEC, right? So mm-hmm. they all have these are all insane venues, but those are four of the the louder stadiums in this conference, and that's almost more the X factor than I feel like it's a manageable road schedule. I also would mention their 2024 schedule. Uh, Ross Bjork, uh, the AD at AM, got what he wanted, which was when Texas joined the conference when they first played, that it would be played at AM. And that's what they got. Or, uh, yeah, that's what they got. So you get LSU and Texas at home in 2024. And like you said, Auburn and Florida, like that's not a big road test really for them either. Like, they'll be I, massive games for sure. Yeah. I mean, A&M, I think you could make the very, very easy. I mean, you could throw in South Carolina and Mississippi State there. Like, I just, you don't, and then the biggest thing here, guess who they don't play in 2024? The two best teams in the conference, like Alabama and Georgia are not on A&M schedule. Isn't it kind of funny that after all of this, we the one certainty it felt like as college football and SEC fans, we thought the 2024 SEC schedule would have is A&M and Georgia with Georgia going to A&M for the first time since A&M's been in the conference. And of course, Georgia is going to Texas before they're going to A&M. Um, just Do we incredible need to stuff. look into this deeper? <laughs> is there some sort of conspiracy of like a restraining order? Someone isn't allowed. Kirby Smart not allowed in the state of Texas. Like, is there? Yeah. Do, we need to, do we need to dig deeper here? Like, it's it's insane that now they've been in the conference for this will be the thirteenth year or so. Uh, in the conference and still no no Georgia at A&M. We've had A&M at Georgia at least one time, but yeah, it's crazy that... And another thing I was disappointed with the schedule was uh, I felt like Texas got off easy. As, mm. as a newcomer in the SEC, I don't feel like they were just given a gauntlet. Make the case. Why did you... Why Because I don't know if I agree with this. Why do you think Texas got off easy? Well, for one... For to start with, I think Georgia. Well, we'll get we'll get to that. I think Florida and Texas are the only two team only two teams in the whole conference that have three true road games. Florida, we'll get to. I have some strong thoughts on Florida. Yeah, Florida. I, it's not like their schedule is easier or anything, but Florida and Texas are the only teams with three true road games because the they're the road team in neutral site mm-hmm. uh, games. But so they get Florida and Georgia at home. Kentucky and Mississippi State are the other two. Like. Those, as far as obviously Georgia and Florida are really big time opponents, but they do get those at home. The road schedule is Arkansas and A and M, and then Vanderbilt. So it's mm-hmm. like you're only really going to Arkansas and A and M, and then obviously Oklahoma is going to be a fifty fifty split. So I feel like um, Texas got a pretty manageable to get a huge team like Georgia year one, and to get that game at home. I, I wish they would have given them more of a gauntlet. Like, welcome to the SEC, guys. Like, this is this is what it's going to be. Well, it felt like one of the two would get the gauntlet, and I think Oklahoma got more of the gauntlet than Texas. I would agree on that front. Like, Oklahoma's looks pretty brutal here, by yeah. and large. Um, and we'll get to the gauntlets and who uh, it hurt more. But, I mean, Texas that year, they people don't – I don't know if people realize. They have to go to Michigan <laughs> in 2024, too. It's not – like, they have a murderer's row here. So – it's not like it's could have been worse, but like, hey, you still got Oklahoma, which is good. You got to go to Arkansas. Um, you get Florida at home, which is nice. You get George at home, which is a big win. Kentucky, take it or leave it. Um, but you're at AM at Vandy. That's a great like early road game. Like to get Vandy on the calendar is good for them too. 
I don't know. This doesn't, uh, it, it could have gone a lot worse. So I agree with you on that front. It could have been significantly more arduous for, um, for, uh, the horns to this point. But, uh, I think it's a, well, you're one. And like you said, at the top of the thing with this rotation and getting rid of divisions and where we're going with the scheduling every year, it's going to be a gauntlet for everybody. Like it's, it's not going to be a cupcake for any, you're not going to be able to hide anymore, uh, in this conference. But with that being said, do you know who my team was, who I think are the biggest winners here in the 2024 schedule? Who's that? It's the Arkansas Razorbacks. Yeah. The Hogs, I think, actually have the easiest schedule of anyone in the SEC in 2024. I think oh, you if think you so? want to buy some hog stock, you want to buy it for 2024. If Arkansas is going to make a move with Sam Pittman in this group, 2024 is the year because you get an unbelievable amount of breaks here. You get, <laughs> like, just look at this. You get AM at home. You get LSU at home. Ole Miss at home. Tennessee at home. Texas at home. Your road games in the SEC that year, at Mississippi State, winnable. At Auburn, winnable. At Mizzou, winnable. Um, but, yeah, like, that's that's it. It's not bad. Like, Arkansas got a very, very good draw. And I think... If you're looking at early, like 2024, like who do you think could have a sneaky tendon to compete for the top of the SEC um, in November? And you're like, who is like, who's the third team? Like that third team that's just hanging around that you're like, oh, could they make the playoff as like a at large SEC team? Arkansas, because it's the first year of the playoff, the expanded playoff in 2024. If I had to do like an SEC dark horse at large team right now for 2024, I think it's the Hogs for me. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you notice what those the two teams we both named have in common, right? What's that? Arkansas and Texas A&M are the only two teams in the entire SEC that don't play Georgia or Alabama. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's 2024. LSU and Tennessee could easily be the two best teams in the SEC. And, you know, it's it, things happen. But I think it's a safe assumption that Georgia and Alabama will still be powerhouses. And Seems if you just go way. through the entire, you go through the entire conference, and some everyone has at least one of them. There's mm-hmm. a couple of those teams that the Auburns and Tennessees, I think maybe Ole Miss. No, not not, not Ole Miss, but a couple of them that have uh, that have both on the schedule. Um, Matt Green, what about on the flip side here? Uh, who do you think got the toughest schedule, and why is it the Florida Gators here? You thought Florida was the toughest? I think Florida's overall schedule, like once you add in their non-conference. Okay, so you're is, saying just conference schedule. That's fair. So who do you think actually got the toughest conference I schedule? I mean, I will I – will, we can go into Florida, though, because you might be right. I mean, Georgia, obviously, in Jacksonville, and at Tennessee and at Texas, that's, uh, that's definitely difficult. And then LSU Hold on. And also, sidebar A&M on the Florida-Georgia thing. If Jacksonville, the Jaguars, are going to be redoing the stadium and playing in Daytona for a couple of years during this time span, why would you not just do the home and home in between this? Are they going to play in Daytona and wherever? Are they going to move wherever they the Jaguars move? I, I think that would, there's no way they play in Daytona. I think that Atlanta I would probably be more, more likely than Daytona. But would Florida agree to that site. two years in a row? No, I think it's definitely going to go home and home if for the whatever, if it if it's just for a two-year period if it's like guaranteed that 
the next 10 years are going to be back in Jacksonville. Um, I, I would guarantee that, that if it was two years, they'd go home and home. Like they did. I think back that's what in, it looks like. It looks like it's going like to be a two year away. Five, I think. Yeah. 93, 94, maybe. Hmm. Sorry. Sidebar. I was curious about that when I'm looking at the 2024 schedule. I'm like, what happens if the Jaguars stadium is under renovation? You can't play. No. And speaking of Jacksonville, I think, I think Jacksonville is like very much on the table looking at this schedule. Like I hmm. think that's, that's one of like the potential like victims here is Georgia fans were promised like, Hey, we're going eight ga- conference games. Like get home schedule is going to get way better. And you look at this home schedule and it's, it's Auburn and, and Tennessee. It's like, well, yeah, that's the only two games we've had on our schedule for most years is Auburn mm-hmm. and Tennessee. So with that Jacksonville game, you only getting a third home game some years in the sec, I think, I think that's like holding on for dear life. Whereas if you have a nine game conference schedule and you got those four home games and some years you got five home games, I think you're willing to give up that Jacksonville, um, that Jacksonville game every once in a while, but, hmm. or every year. But I think with the three home games, like that, that doesn't sit right with you. Just three. I mean, obviously they'll, they'll have three or four, maybe four or more out of conference, but like in 2024, Georgia specifically has Clemson, uh, in Atlanta. So mm. that's that's another game that's not going to be a home game. Georgia Tech off the top of my head. Even number yeah, yeah. Georgia Tech would be a home game. But um so it's like a 5-6 home games in a in a 12 game season. That's that doesn't sit well with season ticket holders. So I wonder, what do you think? Do you think UF Georgia happens in Athens in 2024? If that's if that's the year they that Jacksonville starts the renovations, I yeah, I, I guess it I guess it could. I don't I'm not sure. I think they've already I know they agreed to it, but like the Jaguars are closing the stadium. Like I don't know if they're So gonna... it might be 25-26 that they that they actually um cuz I thought I thought they already agreed to something like a couple years that were guaranteed it was going to be in Jacksonville, mm-hmm. but um I could be wrong, but, but no, but going back to Florida, like their, their schedule is tough, but I, I feel like having just the three true road games, that's getting LSU, A&M, Ole Miss and Kentucky at home. I think that's a, it's not the worst, but then you add Florida state, Miami and central Florida into it. And it's, it's like, that. that's, that's kind of a, that's a brutal schedule. Like you look at that schedule and like, I think Samford is like the one cupcake they have on the schedule. It's like, is central Florida, like the second worst team on the entire schedule that season. Like Mm. that's a, that's unheard of territory for a college football team. Like you usually have two or three built in wins. One of them is usually Vanderbilt, maybe a Missouri in there uh, for, for an sec East team. But yeah, this, this schedule, they don't have any Vanderbilt, Missouri or a South Carolina on there this year, which, all may have been did all of those teams beat florida last year i mean a lot of them did south carolina no florida blasted south carolina yes right? because that was um, it where we're like oh south carolina's and then they reel yeah, off two yeah. straight uh crazy and i can't ones. remember florida missouri off the top of my head right did did florida win that game or did was <laughs> look think, look it up i think florida Dead beat Missouri. yeah i think florida beat missouri uh, off the top of my head i think they did I'll look it up. Um, I know they lost to Vanderbilt. They blasted them. They lost to Kentucky. Who lost to Tennessee? Was it the first time they Florida, been Florida twenty four seventeen? Yeah. Okay. That's what I thought. 
Um, well, there you go. Mine, I think, is Oklahoma. I think Oklahoma, Matt Green. It's going to be a murderer's row here, I think, for the Sooners in the SEC front. Um, the hype will return. It's obviously the big one here um, for Oklahoma, but you look at it, you still get Texas, you have to go to Auburn, you got to go to LSU at Mizzou, it's fine, who cares, but like you get Alabama in this draw, so getting Alabama, LSU, Tennessee, Texas, Ole Miss on the road as well, I just look at this and I'm like, this is six and six seven and five territory for me if uh if i'm looking at this oklahoma schedule like hypo's gonna be looking for blood coming into uh coming into norman for that one and i think they'll be better uh, especially with nico in in the fold there but texas just blasted you 49 nothing this past year auburn will be even better in year two under hugh freeze and what he's got cooking there at lsu is gonna be a bloodbath even you get alabama at home good luck old miss at Ole Miss, that's no cakewalk. I think Oklahoma actually got the worst schedule of anyone in 2024. Um, I think Florida got the worst as a whole with UCF and Florida State being in the fold. But I think in terms of just SEC schedule, I look at this and I'm like, Oklahoma, you are in trouble. Sell the Oklahoma stock in 2024 for me. Maybe just sell all of it under the Brent Venables area. Just, just sell it all. Yeah, it's definitely tough. I think that's why I put Georgia and Oklahoma up there because they're the only two teams that have just three true home games. Mm-hmm. And then you have having to go at LSU and at Auburn. That's just that's brutal. And obviously they do get Alabama at home, which for some reason Georgia didn't get Alabama at home. I don't know. SEC office, what's that? what that's about. 2020, Georgia went to Tuscaloosa. Now they're going to Tuscaloosa for a second straight matchup. Don't, well, don't understand of- it. Well, I think Bama fans are probably annoyed that they didn't get because it wasn't it was a COVID game, so it wasn't full capacity. And I remember at the time that kind of sucked that it wasn't a full capacity environment. So this time you could spin it that way, where we get a full capacity Bama crowd for that one. That's fair, but uh, but yeah, Oklahoma and I, I I don't know if you remember I I, I think Missouri and Texas A and M they both got home games to start off, like Georgia. Georgia at home was Missouri's first game in the SEC. And I want to say Florida at home was Texas A&M's first game. So they mm. gave them like a marquee opponent. So I'm curious to like who, who Texas and Oklahoma get as that very first SEC game. Like Oklahoma at Al- or Alabama at Oklahoma for like your very first SEC game. Like that, that feels like a welcome to the SEC. You got to play Alabama first game. Like I, I, I hope they do that. That would be funny. I mean, it just, yeah, I, I think. And I mean, you could give Texas, Georgia, I guess, first game too. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me. You're doing Texas, Alabama pretty early anyway. Like, why not just uh, throw them to the wolves right away? Welcome to the SEC. It's better. Hey, a lot of uh, eyeballs. Be exciting. Um, I Hey, why, why not, Matt Green? Um, I'm honestly, I'm going to call that right now. I think mm. those, those are going to be like week two, week three, like early sec games of Georgia. It's going to be their very first, very first sec game is going to be Alabama at Oklahoma and Georgia at Texas calling that right now. Okay. Um, 
last one on the schedule. What's the most underrated to you that you were perusing of all of them? What do you think is the most fascinating or interesting to you of all the schedules? Oh man, the most fascinating is um, probably just looking at some of these, because I think we all know the SEC West has just been so much better than the SEC East from top to bottom that these the the middle of the road SEC East teams, or honestly, I guess middle to bottom SEC East teams is what I'm really like most curious to see. Like hmm. like two teams I, I looked at over the last six years. Auburn is forty four and thirty two. Kentucky is forty seven and twenty nine. Like Kentucky has been a quote unquote better team than than Auburn the last <clears throat> excuse me last six years. Mm. But I think if Auburn is playing Kentucky's schedule over the last six years, they probably have 10 more wins than Kentucky has with it. Like, Mm. I think we're really going to see how different the divisions really were. Like, I I don't think you're going to see Georgia now lose a bunch of games because they're playing more SEC West teams. But in terms of, like... Not having Vanderbilt to to boost your schedule, like uh, Kentucky's a great example to me, and in South Carolina, that like some of those years, you you wonder South Carolina wins seven eight games, like what they would have done if if they don't have those games versus a Missouri versus a, a Vanderbilt, like if you're actually having to play uh, Alabama now, you're having to play LSU, because I think in the same way, like Arkansas and Ole Miss are now Auburn are now kind of winners, like Auburn's. Auburn's never going to escape it because they schedule competitively at a conference and they're going to get Alabama and Georgia every year. But it, like seeing Vanderbilt, seeing Kentucky on Auburn's schedule, you got to be like, oh man, this is <laughs> this is nice to not play the entire gauntlet of the SEC. Yeah, and I wonder too, like, I mean, just teams that like really you look at it and you're like, oh, you have no chance of ever even sniffing. Like Mizzou, Kentucky um Vanderbilt obviously uh Miss State you just look around you're like oh man I just I don't ever see the path of you getting through this gauntlet and making the SEC title game like there are so many cross-off teams year over year where I'm like you just won't have there's just too much has to go right like too much has to go right to see it and I don't know. I and think it that's felt one like of one of those things was always the schedule. It's yeah. like, oh, they get a year where they don't a Wisconsin Iowa type thing. Yeah. Oh, they don't play any of the good teams from the Big Ten East. It's that's like, all over. You're playing a gauntlet every year now. Yeah, there there is no like, oh, well, they did they didn't play this, they didn't play that. Like everyone everyone's playing everyone or not not quite, but I the biggest thing I worry about is just some sort of divisional tiebreaker or mm. championship tiebreaker is with only playing eight games, it feels like that's a little bit higher that, you know, who knows what the outcome is if we got a couple 10 and two teams at the top of the SEC. That's fair, Matt Green. Um, let's transition here. I got a couple um, fun. I want to start this little exercise, which is more likely game I have here for uh, this off season edition here in late June on the full ride. Matt Green. Um, so which is more likely? Speaking of the SEC, we'll stay in the SEC here. The Vols win the East in 2023, or Arkansas finishes last in the West in 2023? What do you think is actually more likely? I think Arkansas finishing last in the West is mm. way more likely than Tennessee winning really? the, the division. I do. Why? Be- because I don't think... 
I don't think this is the year for Tennessee personally. Mm. And so I just don't, I don't see a path to Tennessee winning the East this year. Whereas I see a path of A&M being really good of Alabama, Mm. LSU, obviously being great. Hugh Freeze and Auburn being better than you expect. Lane Kiffin and Ole Miss just not being terrible. I feel like it's. I almost expect Arkansas or Mississippi State to be the ones that are that are down there in the bottom. So it's it's partly. I I just think Georgia just looks better than Tennessee right now. But I think it's also. I'm not sure how Arkansas finishes in the top half of the SEC West. Well, it's funny. I think the path is KJ Jefferson's healthy for a full year, and he's the best quarterback in the conference. Like, there is a path for that. Like, we've seen the best of KJ is one of the best quarterbacks in the SEC. Like, the best version of him. If he's able to stay healthy, he's obviously... Like, veteran quarterbacks won in this league. Like, when you've been around for a while, like, that that helps. He's obviously a new system. So, that's a big part of it. Sam Pittman had to change both coordinators. And Danny Nose is in there. It's going to be a lot more of a ground-and-pound group um, than what we saw with Kendall Bryles. So, there's a big shift um, in how they're going to play and run the football and use their hog mollies up front and all that new uh, DC. I think his name's Travis Williams. I want to say, but Barry Odom, obviously moving on uh, to UNLV, but the Arkansas defense wasn't great uh, this past year, NFL guys, but you look at it and you're like, if there's an improvement there, KJ's healthy. There's a path. I think their running game is going to be really good. They have a lot of talented backs there. Um, I think they'll be good in that spot. I think for me, it's just, to bet, like to when I'm when I was thinking about this question, it's like the East is so wrapped up, and the reason I had like posed it this way was just that like it's all Tennessee has to get through is Georgia in this situation, right? Like it's just Georgia. Like they're not really worried about Kentucky. They're not really worried about South Carolina. They're not really worried about uh, Mizzou or Florida, whoever. I was about to say you're not going to name the Gators. You'd be a disrespectful right now. I'm. Vegas is being disrespectful. They are the ones with the five and a half betting over under coming into the year. Like Vegas has them as the second worst team coming into the college football season this year. Like that's not me. That's just Vegas and betters looking at this roster and betting on Graham Mertz in this group, not being able to win a lot of football games this year. That's just, I mean, Florida, I don't think will be good. So with all that being said, it's just like Tennessee, it might just take a, you get, georgia in knoxville like if joe milton is playing like a top five quarterback in this kind in the country does some stuff that hendon couldn't do where he just does more stuff out of uh out of just the the schematics and the style where hendon was just an un hendon did so many things well but if joe is able to play outside of structure and is able to do things when the offensive line crumbles against the next Jalen Carter and the Georgia defensive line group and is able to do stuff to keep plays open. Is he hard to bring down? Like one of the things I saw up close and in person uh, when with Tennessee, Florida last year was that like the reason Florida was in that game was because Anthony Richardson was impossible to bring down. Like his lower half was just gigantic. He just had like these two tree trunks that were planted <laughs> to Neyland stadium where Tennessee was getting home. They just couldn't bring him down. So he's keeping drives alive, plays alive and Florida had a chance to win last play of the game. I think there's a path. I'm not saying they're identical in Milton and Richardson, but I think throughout the year, you're going to see a lot of like all the physical tools. He obviously has the best arm in the sport. Huge. Um, has actually uh, lost weight uh, this offseason to get a little bit faster, but like 
all the intangible stuff, like all the physical tools. There will not be a more physical toolsy guy, um, this group. So it's like if he put it all together, you already had the best offense in college football last year. You were top 10 the year before. Like, I don't know. There's a path to, like, getting George at home, and maybe the quarterback doesn't work out. Maybe there is a slight blip with Mike Bobo. Maybe Carson Beck stinks and has a rough go of it in Athens, or maybe they have to – Georgia bounces back and forth between different quarterbacks and they're more susceptible on that side of the ball. I'm not betting on it, but there's a path. There's like a, what, 5% chance that Georgia's quarterback room is unsettled and kind of a mess. We saw it a couple years ago. They figured it out down the stretch, but we saw two years ago, really, that it took a while for Stetson to take the reins and get comfortable and um, for them to, to move through the rest of their schedule. I think with Arkansas in the West, when I was thinking about like, which is the more likely option. I think the Vols winning the East is more likely because I think Arkansas has got a steady floor. Like I don't see Pittman just falling off a cliff there and having a season from hell where they're still a talented group. They did well in the portal. If KJ plays 10 games, I just don't see this group being the worst team in the division. I just, I think that would be really, really hard for me to forecast but I'm also looking around, like you said, Mississippi State never finishes last. Like, you can have all the questions you want about Zach Arnett. They're always <laughs> going to be right there in the middle somehow. They just sneak into the middle of the pack in the West year over year. Auburn, like, I don't this know. This they... year, with, with, like you said, with Arnett, it, <clears throat> it feels a little different around Mississippi State. But, yeah, they're, they're never as bad as you kind of most people expect them to be. It might sound weird. I think it's going to be Auburn, but I think it will be a good last place finish. Does that make sense? I think Auburn will have an exciting last place team in the West. I think they'll win some games they shouldn't. Probably seven and five. And see, but seven and five is usually not last place. There's usually a team that misses a bowl game. Like A and M missed a bowl game last year, right? Five and seven. Yeah. So it's possible that the last place is a six and six team, and they and they go bowling or something, but. I, I just the the KJ Jefferson point like it's possible that he's the best quarterback in the SEC and Arkansas is competing for the SEC West like that's very mm-hmm. that's definitely possible I feel like they just they were not nearly as good of a team last year I feel like as they were in 2021 like they they seem to really take a step back and they they also lost some of that good personnel from 2022 so I don't know they still get they still have KJ Jefferson they still have uh, Raheem Sanders, but yeah, you know, the offense should should be maybe more what Sam Pittman wants to do, like you said, just ground and pound. But um, I don't know that they have like a set floor because Auburn, you just never know what's going to happen with Auburn. And I, I swear, it's like the Cam Rising thing. Like he was overrated at one point, but then once people started piling on, I was I, I bought the stock low, and I was like, you know what, this guy's not as bad as people say. Texas A and M, like. I just, I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm buying the Texas A&M stock, the Petrino Jimbo thing. Like it might just be crazy enough to work. Like I don't know. Like the more I think about it, like they're always the team that like just gets too much hype, but and and rarely lives up to it. Like I, I would, I feel like if if someone told me that about Texas A&M, like I'm not gonna die on a hill arguing against it. Right? They, they probably have not lived up to the hype more times than not but 
I don't know. This talent, like that recruiting class they brought in was like the highest ranked class ever for a reason. Like these guys are going to be sophomores. We saw some of those true freshmen shine like last year. Like they got, they got those guys at several different levels of both sides of the ball. Like, I don't know. A&M is just not to get off an A&M tangent, but they're just another team that I feel like is going to be a competitor in the, in the West that it's hard for, it's hard for me to see, for me to see Arkansas up there near the top. And like most people are, they probably think LSU is going to be the, the SEC media day pick over Alabama. Honestly, that's a good question. I don't know. I feel like LSU will be the media pick for the West. Uh, yeah, that's what I said. Oh, I thought you were saying A and M over LSU. No, yeah, I'm saying LSU over Alabama. Like that'll yeah. be the kind of surprising thing because it's Alabama mm-hmm. basically every year. So it's like you got LSU, Alabama, maybe A and M up there. Auburn, the ultimate wild card, like Ole Miss, I, uh, I, Lane Kiffin, Ole Miss, they could be, they're not recruiting at the level that they should. Like they could end up in last place in the SEC. They're West. probably the sneaky favorite to me where everything goes wrong. All the different quarterbacks they sneaky bring in. Sneaky favorite to finish last. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I can see I a season from hell from A&M. Everyone loves Lane Kiffin, but that's, that team, it's not as quite of like as sturdy of a foundation as it. Pete Golding now the DC. Be. They might have a terrible defense if the quarterback doesn't work. I'm like, yeah, you could see it. I could see it. Yeah, I mean, they were what six and six a year ago. So yeah. they could be a game worse and miss a bowl game. I could see it. Um, USC's defense vastly improves, or Iowa's offense vastly improves next season. What do you think is more likely in 2023, Matt Green? Uh, definitely USC's defense. Improving. Wow, no belief in the contract restructure for Brian Ferentz where he has to score a certain amount of points a game to is keep his 27 job. 27 points per game? Is that 27 or 25, something like that, yeah. I guarantee you they <laughs> scored 27 points per game. Whatever the number is that they have to hit, they will hit. But 27 points per game is what? That's like the 90th ranked offense in college football? Like That's mm-hmm. not even good. So we um, we obviously know Lincoln Riley's track record with defenses. They had the one defense, I think, what was that, 20, was it 2017 uh, or 2018 that was ranked like 40th at Oklahoma or something? They it was like, hey, early on. It was like 2017. Our defense doesn't yeah. suck this year. Mm-hmm. Um, but you saw him go right back to having like the 90th, 80th ranked defense in the country. So it's hard to bet on USC and Lincoln Riley's team having a good defense, but you know, the way they're recruiting at USC, like they're going to have good players. Iowa doesn't have good players on offense. Like, I don't know what Iowa, how they're suddenly going to start just change their entire identity and start scoring points offensively on the plus side though. I'm actually going to go Iowa here. I think the Mm. defense, I think Lincoln is going to just like give up on defense. I think he's just going to say, I'm going to just bank on this Heisman quarterback and a bunch of stars at the playmaker skill position spots. And then, well, what's the, what's the barometer here? Like, is like a top, a top 20 defense, top 20. No, that's never going to happen. We're talking top 50 defense, top 50 offense. I would say top 50 defense or top 50 offense. And I actually think it's still Iowa to top 50 offense is more likely than USC crack in top 50 in their defense. Mm. All five starters back on the offensive line for Iowa from a season ago. Cade McNamara coming in there, who we've seen 
at least we have seen a competent offense from Cade McNamara at Michigan. Look, he wasn't the the guy to get them over the hump. Maybe it's not even J.J. McCarthy. But the dude still guided Michigan to a really successful offensive season and got them to the college football playoff. He's now at Iowa. I I look at this with Johnson in the backfield, who led their team in rushing a season ago. They dipped in the The defense is still going to be electric. They're not going to turn the ball over. I think there's a path where they go from 18.7 points a game, I think they were averaging last year. I could see 20, upper 20s, maybe 30s if everything goes right uh, with that group. If the defense forced a lot of turnovers like that defense did a couple years ago and the offense is a little bit competent, there's a contract incentive here for Brian Ferentz to do so. Not a stiff competition. Guess what USC has to deal with every week? Elite quarterback play. Guess what you don't have to deal with every week for Iowa's offense? You're not going to deal with the best of the best week over week. You can improve. We've seen good Iowa offenses in the past. I really haven't seen a good Lincoln Riley offense in a long time. Like, at least we've seen it for Iowa. I'm going to go Iowa here. I'm not, I wouldn't bet on either, but if I had to go with one, I think I'm more cautiously optimistic about Iowa. Yeah, I um the the quarterback point <clears throat> that's a fair point because USC is going to face some, some good offenses next year, but you know in the in the Big Ten the, Iowa's going to be facing some really good defenses, so it's uh it kind of goes both ways. I just feel like Iowa is just it feels like that's their identity. I don't know if they mm. know how to be good at offense. Like at USC, we've seen them be good at defense before. I don't know. We haven't seen a Lincoln Riley team be good at defense very often, but uh, I don't know. I'm, I have more faith in USC than uh, than Iowa. And, and also, before we get any uh, any hate mail in the comments, uh, Ole Miss went eight and four and then lost the bowl game went eight and five. So mm. they went four and four in the SEC. But yeah, I said they went six and six. Yeah. So that was that was wrong. Iowa, Matt Green, I got something for you. In 2020, averaged 31 points a game, top 40 offense. Okay. I've seen it. They can do it. Like, I I just wouldn't bet on it, but I'm going Iowa over USC here. Um, Florida avoids three straight losing seasons for the first time in forever, or FSU makes the college football playoff. What do you think is more likely, Matt Green? I would definitely say uh, Florida avoids a third straight losing season. I would say I would that's agree. more likely, just because Florida State making the playoff like that's a that's a jump. Like people are talking about it though, like it's almost a guarantee. Where if you were, all you have to do is beat Clemson and you're in the CFP, that's how it seems like people are talking about this Seminoles team. That is how people are talking about them, but it's like since when is Florida State at a at a point where you can just pencil in the wins versus the <laughs> inferior teams and then and then just it's just gonna come to that toss-up game like anyone's been able to beat this team the last few years like do they have Syracuse on the schedule like Syracuse is giving Florida State some uh <laughs> some embarrassing losses but I um I just I definitely think Florida State's gonna be a good team this year like Florida is another team that Florida State will have to to play to get to the playoff but Florida's schedule makes me you know kind of hesitant here because both of the or neither of these things it's possible neither of these things happen right 
Mm-hmm. So Florida's schedule is is very possible that they do miss a bowl game, and they're they they could be you know maybe even improved from what they were a year ago and still miss a bowl game because it is a pretty tough schedule. But I just Florida State being good enough to actually make the playoff and like go through their season really with if they if they get through their season with one loss essentially is is they're going to be in the playoff most likely, and it's hard to it's hard to pencil them in to do that. Yeah, and I just am uh, – I'm not going to do it, Matt Green. Do you know where I can see it? At Pitt just feels like a Florida State loss. No, Pitt loves doing this to everybody. Like, that's a Pitt favorite. I could absolutely see Pitt ruining FSU's college football playoff season. It is just that game at home. Also, are we penciling them in beating LSU back-to-back to open? Oh, yeah, I totally forgot about LSU. Are we penciling them in to win at – florida and beat florida in back-to-back years florida will have more talent than florida state in this game florida state's not in the blue chip ratio they're still kind of ahead of schedule part of why florida's getting a bunch of benefit of the doubt here is jordan travis is awesome right benson's awesome running back um they cleaned up in the portal jared verse is uh, one of the best edge guys all around and um and just college football like they have a lot of top-end talent not the deepest I'm also not picking them over Clemson. Clemson people are have gone too far the other way, where it's like it's FSU's time, and I'm like, Garrett Riley is a really good sneaky hire. They adjusted pretty well this offseason. They still are loaded on the defensive side of the ball. There's Kate Klubnick is still probably going to be pretty awesome with this group. Will Shipley showed a lot last year. He's probably going to be a Heisman candidate for them this upcoming year. Like Clemson, I think is going to be pretty pretty solid um and the cfp favorite one of the five to seven best teams in college football next year i don't see it yet i think florida state's not ready and i think florida i look the five and a half is scary but i think there's a much more obvious path to florida getting six wins than florida state making the cfp i think i would be pretty floored if cfp may or if florida state made the cfp and I wouldn't be at all surprised if Florida still found a way to get six and six, seven and five, something like that. Yeah, exactly. Like Florida State, like I don't want to just you know poo-poo on their breakthrough twenty twenty-two season. Like they had a good year, but like mm-hmm. they beat a lot of bad teams down the stretch to kind of create this off-season buzz. So it's like it's just. I feel like people just are obsessed with certain brands, and when certain brands show a sign of life we really believe in it. And that's mm. kind of Tennessee is kind of one of those. It's like you're people are just waiting for like, oh, Tennessee, they're big time. Like, oh yeah, once they're back, they're legit. Like whenever Miami is is good at all, everyone's like, oh, Miami's back. Texas is back. Like we do this all the time. And Florida State feels like one of those teams that like, oh, Florida State, yeah, it's only a matter of time so they're back to being a powerhouse because that's how it always was the whole time we've been alive basically. But like what makes them that much better than like an NC state from a couple years ago? Like NC state had some buzz, you know, coming into to 2021 um, or was it 2022 and they were fine. Well, I think one of the years Devin Leary got hurt. There was there, you know, things went wrong, but it's like, that's kind of what Florida where Florida state is that like one key injury. And yeah, they're probably, they might be a three or four loss team. Like I don't, I'm just, it's interesting how quickly they've become, like you're saying, like Clemson, if they beat Clemson, they're going to the playoff. And and I, I, I even forgot LSU was on the schedule. It's like, that's that's two losses. You basically yeah. have to, 
and 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 also like there's no mulligan like you no. Clemson because we know the ACC division so well <laughs> if you lose to Clemson you're gonna you're not gonna win the Atlantic so you're not gonna get to the ACC championship so you have to be wait I thought they got rid of them this year I don't think they have divisions this year in the ACC are you sure ACC divisions gone I think they are because I think the SEC is there but I think they're gone this year let me double check uh, ACC division that would change things a little bit because then if you lose to Clemson you can at least beat them back like that I feel like that at least yes it's gone the the divisions are gone this season in 2023 okay yeah. so I mean that does increase their chances a little bit if they but then they have to beat LSU in that scenario and maybe lose to Clemson I also just don't and, think they're getting the benefit of the doubt as a two-loss team no, I don't think there's any chance. As a one-loss team with LSU and Clemson on the schedule, then whoever you beat in the ACC championship, a one-loss Florida State is getting in the playoff. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know that this team. I definitely wouldn't bet on this team navigating the schedule. And we're not even. Yeah, like you said, we're not even talking about at Pittsburgh, at Florida, Miami at home, at Boston College. Like who the hell knows? Like Florida State has not been taking care of business the last few years. Absolutely. Um, this one might surprise you. The final one here as we wrap up here on this uh, Wednesday edition of the Full Ride, Matt Green. The best new SEC quarterback will end up being who next season? Who do you think has the best statistical season among all the new faces that are going to be under center in the SEC next year? Do you have a Do you have a list of the of the names here that to, to refresh the listeners, or do you just mean to just go with it? Just go. Uh, let me see. I can pull it up real quick. Um, so I'm thinking we got who we got. Devin Leary. We got Graham Mertz. Hold on. Let me just get a, it in front of me so I can so we don't go. We, we don't overlap here. Okay. Um, we've got probably let's go. Ty Simpson slash Jalen Mil, uh, Jaden Milrow, Peyton Thorne, Graham Mertz, Carson Beck. Um, uh, AJ Swan will still be under center for Vanderbilt. Uh, Devin Leary. Joe Milton. We'll say Ole Miss still stays with Jackson Dart. And Oh, I think that's Spencer Sanders for sure. Okay, well, we'll throw in that. But then Brady Cook's probably starting for Mizzou. Connor Wagman for a Don't sleep on Brady Cook, my guy. <laughs> Brutal. Wow. What a weird quarterback room, by the way. Sam Horn, Brady Cook, Jake Garcia in that quarterback room right now. It's a yeah. weird one. Um, but of that list, Matt Green, who do you think has the best season of all the newcomers there? I think Spencer Sanders is a really sneaky answer that like could happen. You're not going to do that. I'm not going to do that, but I'm just saying like in Lane Kiffin's offense, he's a dual threat guy. Like I just think there's, I think Matt Corral put up some, some good numbers for Lane Kiffin as well. I think I got to go Carson Beck on this mm. one because Georgia just feels like so plug and play ready for like any quarterback that Carson Beck's a guy who just knows this system so well. He's he's been waiting his turn. Like I don't feel like you I don't feel like you wait around this long if you like if you can't play at this level. You know what I mean? I think lots of times like you transfer after maybe 2 years because you're like, "Okay, I need to go somewhere else for playing time." Like I think this guy knows he can play at Georgia. He all we really saw was mop up duty last year, but he he always looked good in in the little bit we have seen of him. And it for it to be a open competition, zero career starts among this quarterback room mm. for it for it to really be this quiet. 
makes you think like Carson Beck, it's not even a question that, that he's the guy. And so I, I think Carson Beck is, I think he's going to step in. Mike Bobo is going to pick up where Monken left off. And I think, I think Carson Beck, like it's hard to judge statistically because like, are we playing fantasy, fantasy sports statistics? Because in that case, like, I don't think Georgia is going to be playing. I don't think Carson Beck is going to be playing a lot of fourth quarters next year. You know what I mean? I think, I think you're going to see a lot more blowouts. For one, Georgia is going to be really good, but I think the schedule is also really weak for the most part. So it's hard to judge stats wise, but I think you know we can judge for ourselves how he's playing. And I think Carson Beck is, as far as the newcoming newcomer starting quarterbacks, I think he's going to be the best of the of the of the group. Interesting. I I went back and forth on this for a little bit because Carson Beck I think is uh, is a good one. I'll stay away from that one. And part of me is like, don't be dumb. Don't walk away from the Ty Simpson one where it's like, are, are we going to do this? Like, there is a part of me. There's not a strong part, but there is like five percent of me that's like, you could still see all Alabama's quarterback, whoever it ends up being, being the best of this group where there is something to the Nick Saban offense overwhelms, whatever Tommy Reese is bringing in the talents better at receiver. They, the offensive lines, better. like, I guess there's still a path. I'm not going to do that, but I, I hesitated. Peyton Thorne is actually my sneaky one where mm. we've seen quality play from Peyton Thorne in the big 10. It's not like he's coming in from a G five school where he didn't play anybody. He's coming in from Michigan state. He's played in big games. Like, I think that was a sneaky big get um, for Auburn, but I was listening to Nathan King on uh, 247 on with Bud Elliott uh, for Summer School, the Cover 3 podcast. I don't know if you listened to that this week, but something that Nathan pointed out is that I don't think any Auburn quarterback has ever been ended up being the starting quarterback when they missed spring ball. So Peyton Thorne being a late transfer and then being the starter would be kind of unprecedented for Auburn and he's just missed a lot of time. So I'm curious if that ends up holding him back. Newton, was he around for spring? I think the last time it happened was Nick Marshall, apparently. Okay. And in that case, it worked out pretty well worked because out. Nick Marshall went to a national title game, um, which is kind of wild. Uh, UGA legend, Nick Marshall. So that's a big part of it for me. I think Peyton Thorne, I'm just going to do it. I think Peyton Thorne is actually with the Hugh Freeze offense, with how much help they got in the portal like they got both their tackles from tulsa i think their offensive line will be a lot better this year than what we saw last year the upgrade from robbie ashford who was like completing less than 50 percent of his passes last year i mean i think peyton thorne is just going to be a quality really good like everyone wants to say devin leary and it's like liam cohen's back and blah blah, blah. he can't stay healthy one and two we're overblowing what Will Levis was two years ago. Like Kentucky's offense wasn't blowing the doors off people with Liam Cohen. It still stoops his blueprint all over it. They were 39th in passing. Like it wasn't like this was just a Heisman type year for, for Will Levis. And they're going to put Devin Leary in a position to be one of the, the premier quarterbacks. He's going to be kind of a game. They're still, the identity is still stoopsy in <laughs> uh, with Kentucky. So that's not my pick. And I just can't do it with Joe Millen. I'm not putting the, I, I, I just can't, I, I, I'm not there. So when I go there, Peyton Thorne, Hugh Freeze, it just doesn't matter. Malik Willis, whoever it is, he finds a way. Caden Salter coming in there last year, their offense was still good. It just feels like Hugh Freeze is one of those guys and one of those coaches, and we've seen it in the SEC, where they're going to have playmakers. They did build in the portal. Jarquez Hunter is a really good running back, sneaky, underrated 
really good running back in this conference. I think their offense is going to be sneaky, sneaky good. And I think Peyton Thorne is actually going to have a really good year. Maybe the best statistical year of any of the new faces in the conference. I, I think I lost track of how many times you said sneaky, but um, I'll just I'll let it slide. You got sneaky in the uh, brain here. I'm recording it late. It's 1230 East Coast time. <laughs> sneaky on the brain. Um, but, yeah, I actually I don't hate that. The, it's interesting to, to me that you had this much more faith in Hugh Freeze's offense than you do in Josh Heupel's offense. It's not that. I don't know if Joe – like, I've seen bits and pieces of Joe Milton in this offense. Like, it's not like he's a brand-new face. Like, Joe Milton has played a lot of snaps. I mean, he didn't throw... So, is he not a newcomer? Is he not on this list? He's just... He was part of the list, though, right? He's part of the list, but he's such a weird, mercurial guy for me that, like, I can't even commit to him getting 12 games. Like, he's injury-prone. Like, he... I don't know if he's... His body will hold up if the offensive line struggles. If he gets hit and takes some bad hits, like... I'm still just not convinced that we don't see Nico at some point. So, it's just really hard for me... Like... Two things can be true. I trust Josh Heupel with this offense unequivocally, and whoever is under center, I think he'll figure it out and he'll put the best guy there, and this will be a top 10 offense again. I just don't know if it would be Joe Milton for the full year. I don't know if Joe Milton will A, stay healthy, and I don't know if B, Joe Milton doesn't have the brain farts or he doesn't struggle against some good teams and they go to Nico because Nico's ahead of schedule and just looks like he's ready to be the guy. Like, I just, I'm not there. I don't know if I can fully buy in on Joe Milton, I believe in the talent is all there. I just, I can't predict Joe Milton to be the best quarterback, new coming quarterback in the sec. I think to the, I just, I think the offense will be elite once again. I just don't know if it will be with Joe Milton. I mean, it's got to struggle at some point though, right? If you're going, <clears throat> if you're going to transition away from Joe Milton, that's got to see some sort of struggles. Right, but I mean, they're loaded the running game. They can still run the ball really well, and I think that's what's going to happen too. I think Tennessee's going to run the ball a lot more this year than they did a year ago. Jalen Wright is a freak, and they have a lot more talent in the backfield at this point. True freshman. Um, Cam Selden, I think, will be involved. I I think it's going to be more of taking the ball out of Joe Milton's hands and kind of being a more balanced offense than what we've seen the last couple years. So, I don't know. My gut just tells me he doesn't have the best statistical season. I would be pretty surprised if Joe Milton has the best statistical season of any quarterback in the SEC next year. I think Carson Beck, I would predict, have a better statistical season than Joe. Yeah, and Devin Leary does feel like a candidate, but there's just something. It's like, which version of Devin Leary is the legit version? Like, we we don't know. And I also feel, like, obligated to say, because we haven't even mentioned his name, Mm. uh, Graham Mertz at Florida. Are yeah. we just are we completely writing off Graham Mertz? Like off, there's yeah. no chance at all that yeah, that Florida that. or Graham Mertz, this offense is looking any good? Nah, I'm not. I'm, I mean, you can make I think the there's case a if chance, you want to. and there's a chance that Florida's offense is improved, but not because Graham Mertz. Maybe he's managing the game and they're running the ball well and he's efficient, but I don't see him being like a any sort of stats putting up any sort of stats. They could just have like a an efficient complementary passing game. Because they should be riding that running game in 2023. That's fair. 20, uh, 2020 Liberty is 19th in scoring. 2021, they're... Uh, where'd they go? Uh, 25th. Um, you just go through it. I just He frees offenses. It doesn't matter where he goes. He's going to put up points. Headline of this podcast, Chase Thomas, Hugh Freeze, superior to 
Josh Heupel. No, I just think it's just going to be that bump where they just they surprise some folks, and I think they're going to have a pretty pleasant year one. I just uh, I I'm a I'm an uh, an Auburn stock buyer going into the next couple of years for them. Do I think mm. Hugh Freeze makes it for like ten years at Auburn? No. Do I think this yeah, flames I mean, out eventually? Landed, just landed a uh, big time linebacker who Georgia legitimately wanted uh, yeah. out of Tuskegee. So I mean, that's you got to win some recruiting battles. Oh, he's gonna kill it there. Like they have a great recruiting uh, group. They brought in um, their wide receiver coach. Uh, they pulled in. He was an Auburn alum, and he was somewhere else. And he's a pretty pretty good recruiter. They bring, like he has a very strong staff. Able to keep Cadillac was huge from a year ago no his staff is his strong all across the board so i'm not worried about auburn recruiting at this point and uh they got good uh ad bringing him in cohen from mississippi state now auburn feels relatively stable and they're in a talent rich area and they should be one of the 10 to 15 best football programs in the country year over year like there's really no excuse they're one of those programs where like florida they walk into a top five class they were awful last year, and it doesn't matter. Kids want to go to Florida. They're right there. They so many hey, talented gotta, kids live right there. That's true, but that I don't think that gives Billy Napier enough credit for for the job he's doing. Um, they got some good recruiters. Florida's got a lot in of Florida. They got a lot of competition in the state of Florida too. And Alabama, a lot of those guys are going to Alabama and Georgia and Clemson. But kids want state. to go to Florida. It's a cool school. It's close to home. Kids want a reason to go to Florida and Florida State and Miami. They want to stay close to home. No, that's true. I mean, that's definitely an advantage they have. But they're they're landing some dudes out of uh, Georgia this this class too. Yeah. Uh, Florida is, but I think. Um, Auburn is, is is just they're an interesting one. I um, it, it's funny how some hires just fit. Mm-hmm. Like we all were thinking they should have hired Hugh Freeze back in twenty what was it twenty twenty yeah uh, whenever they hired Harson yeah. it was like he just fit like we just 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 do it yeah. and they had to go down the wrong the wrong road but uh it led back to Hugh Freeze. You can also just make the case that they should just wrote it out with Gus Malzahn like. Dude can still coach. Like, just ride it out. Like, Gus, still top 10 coach in the sport. Doing good stuff. At, no. Yeah. You throw around this top 10 coach thing way too much. Gus Malzahn's not top 30. What? No. I, we got to make a list, but I don't. He's, he's not top 20. He's 18 and 9 at UCF since he got there. He's 94 and 47 as a college coach. before he got there? They're he's won 10 the games SEC every year. twice. He's won the Sun Belt. He's won the West twice. He's won. He's been to the national but when title I think game. About, he was the OC when they won a national title. What does the guy do? When he's, I think about a good coach, it's a guy who's like teams are at least like you know what you're getting every year. Like even like a Kirk Ferentz who's like so flawed offensively. Clearly, there's something Kirk Ferentz is doing, producing big old offensive linemen, tight ends. And having solid defensive play. Like, Auburn is just one of those teams under Gus Malzahn. You had no idea what you're getting year in, year out. Like, the offense was kind of gimmicky. Like, every quarterback just got worse and worse the longer they were in the system. Like, he wasn't, like, the worst coach ever. But I think you're just, like, tired of that experience. Like... And all and all, a lot of it, this you know, is is strong having to go energy. against Nick Saban and Kirby Smart. It's like it's not easy at all. But you know, I think I think Gus Malzahn, they just they had enough. Like they, he it's he had time. Like he had what seven eight years there. Like it's not like he was 
they gave him a quick a quick uh, exit or anything. Honestly, he was probably close to getting fired before that run in 2017 when he beat Alabama, Georgia at Alabama back to back, and he got the extension and everything. He almost went three for three without a like if a carry on Johnson injury doesn't happen. Like, do they go three for three and beat Bama, Georgia, or Georgia, Bama, Georgia? Over the course of Carry a month. Johnson shoulders the reason they lost 28-7? Get it out of here. It was a big here. loss. That was a big loss. Carry on Johnson no, was putting he was. the team he on was, his back. He was, I think, the SEC Offensive Player of the Year that year. He I was, was going to say, you're discounting how good Carry on Johnson was. Like, them losing Carry on in that game, that that was huge. No, for sure. He was uh, he was dynamic, uh, without a doubt. But, um, you know, Georgia... Throw they, them a uh, bone. Things are good. Throw Auburn a bone. They were the best team in the conference that year. Hey, I was watching got- that... I was actually watching that game. It came on SEC Network recently, and that was... Um, that was a monumental game. Yeah. Uh, the DeAndre Swift... Uh, Did you just catch a fly? Exclamation point. Yeah, and fly just <laughs> flew right in my face. That's a good one for the YouTube folks. YouTube.com slash Jason. <laughs> well... Matt Green, that is all I've got. That was a that was a fun exercise. What did you think? It was good. I actually I had a I had a very loyal listener of the show ask me how he could watch this show on YouTube, and and I didn't know what to tell him. Chase Thomas, what I, what do I tell him? Uh, YouTube.com slash Chase Thomas Podcast. Over a thousand and one subs. Um, doing really well. Uh, on the YouTube page, just go to youtube.com slash Chase Thomas Podcast. Even just type it in Chase Thomas Podcast on YouTube. That easy. All the full episodes, clips, shorts, all the good stuff each and every day on the YouTube page. There you go, man. He doesn't need to go to you. He just needs to go to Miss or uh, Mama Green because she knows. Your that's mom true. is up to She knows. Like That's who you need to go to. All the loyal listeners who are in Matt's orbit, just hit up uh, Mrs. Green <laughs> there. She She knows what's going on. Very true. Matt Green, always a pleasure. And uh, I will talk to you next week. Yes, sir. All right. Hello. Welcome back. Chase Thomas Podcast. Taping this on a Monday afternoon. First timer. TV play-by-play voice himself. Drew Goodman is here. Drew, good afternoon, sir. How are you? Good, Chase. How are you? Not too bad. Not too bad. What did uh, what did you make of the Colorado uh, road trip in Atlanta over the weekend? What was your strongest takeaway from this group? Atlanta's really good. They have a, <laughs> uh, they have a tremendous lineup. Um, in an age where we covet home runs, they have a lineup that produces a great deal of home runs. They're number one in baseball, and um, they added uh, 12 to their folio uh, in the four-game set against the Rockies. They 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 are swinging it well, and they certainly took advantage of uh, of the Rockies pitching over the last four days. If you had to get the best positive of the four day four games four day stretch here in Atlanta, what was it for the Rockies? From the Rockies standpoint, mm-hmm. well, Ryan McMahon continues to swing the bat really well. He had a couple of home runs yep. uh, yesterday. He, after a slow start, has really put together an All Star first half when you combine what he does defensively with how he's come on over the last uh, half dozen weeks. Um, offensively, uh, you know, Elias Diaz threw out a home run. He continues mm. to have an all-star caliber first half. Um, and Ezekiel Tovar, young shortstop, continues to uh, get better and better uh, week by week. So, you know, that that's what I take away right now. I, I like watching Nolan Jones play every day and Brenton Doyle because hopefully mm-hmm. they're part of the solution going forward. 
uh, for the Rockies. But yeah, listen, the, the, it's a bottom line business, and mm. when you when you uh, lose more than you're winning, um, that's what people focus on. And uh, losing four games in the fashion they did in Atlanta is disheartening. But you mentioned Ryan McMahon, who is interesting. He had a first inning home run off um, Charlie Morton, who <laughs> the most Charlie Morton thing, like he was, he had a, a solid outing, but like he's either striking you out or he's giving up a uh, home run or losing location, stuff like that. I mean, he's almost 40. Um, you get what you can from Charlie Morton. He's a, he's what you, he's okay at your four spot. But McMahon, you mentioned just kind of an all-star type year. What is flipped for him? Because he's always had the talent. We've known that forever, but he is it seems like he is playing with a level of confidence that we haven't seen in, uh, to this point where he really does carry and play in a way where it's like the meat of that lineup. He is an all-star type player. So what has been the biggest flip for him uh, with in terms of just light bulb and just uh, his style of play and what he's been able to evolve his game uh, in recent, recent months? Yeah, it's a fair question. I, I think for several years he's worked on shortening his swing. I think hmm. he's been challenged at times by higher end velocity. Uh, there's never been a question about his ability. He's mm-hmm. a tremendous athlete. He was an outstanding high school quarterback at modern day in Orange County, a Division I uh, prospect. His, his younger brother, in fact, is a Division I uh, college quarterback, most recently uh, at Rice. He's, mm-hmm. he's still at Rice. He's battling back from an injury. But he's mm-hmm. a great athlete. He's exceptionally good uh, defensively. And uh, from an offensive standpoint, it's just been about consistency. You've seen flashes. You know, he had a three-homer game two years ago against Arizona. So you know it's in there. And can he make that jump from the, you know, 22-home run, 24-home run type of guy to being a 30-homer a guy? Can he can you raise the average and the on-base percentage, you know, 10% or so over, you know, where he's been? And I think this is the longest sustained period that you've seen Ryan McMahon at his best. You've seen mm-hmm. certainly flashes, mm. uh, there's no question, but he's been able to sustain it. And I think he's relaxed a little bit more, um, trusting who he is as an athlete and, and also the combination of really the muscle memory of being shorter uh, to the baseball because he, he has a tremendous skill set. He really does. Do you think part of that too is just he's 28 now where he's just, he's been in the league long enough where he's, he's kind of figured some stuff out or, and also, I mean, I wonder the presence of Chris Bryant uh, on this, uh, on this team, even if he hasn't been available of late, like, has that been uh, something that's really helped him too? I, I couldn't tell you per se if, if Chris Bryant um, has something to do with it. I think mm. that as you get older in the game and you've established yourself clearly as a major leaguer and, mm. and you know he signed a, a very nice contract uh, a year ago so uh, you know there's a comfort level he knows he's a major league starter he knows he's going to hit uh, more often than not in the middle of the order and he got married you know not all that long ago and and i think the overall maturity and he's always been a pretty mature kid and he has a great work ethic and he 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 posts up every day which is something that um, I have great respect for I think people in baseball and sport in general have have great respect for the guy that shows up every day he's always accountable good or bad he's at his Hmm. locker after games that sort of thing but I think the overall maturity of being you know 28 and and finding uh, who you are not only in baseball but as a young man uh, I think all of those contribute on the positive side and you're starting to see it uh, bear fruit 
you know, from a statistical standpoint. Is there anything that he reminds you of in terms of Nolan Arenado? Is there anything about their games that remind you of one another? Um, certainly defensively. I mm. mean, you know, this might sound strange, uh, Chase, but as great a player as Nolan is, and he's destined for the Hall of Fame, uh, and he's the best defensive third baseman I've ever seen. Mm. Ryan, Mc, Ryan McMahon, and I think Nolan would tell you this, Ryan McMahon's a better athlete than Nolan. Mm. Ryan, Ryan is, is quicker. Um, he, he probably has better feet than, um, than Nolan. And, and again, I'm, I'm saying that not to in any way impugn what Nolan has done, what he continues to do, and I'm sure what he will continue to do for years to come. Mm. It's more a testament to how athletic uh, McMahon is, especially for a guy that's you know six two and a half, almost six three, and you know two hundred fifteen, two hundred twenty pounds. Uh, he, he's really gifted athletically. I like it. Um, you mentioned Diaz at the catcher spot. It's it's interesting to see. I mean, he's obviously been excellent for Colorado all year long. But when you look at his all-star, it's it's funny. Like what I grew up around with just so many elite catchers all across the game, especially hitting catchers all across the game. And you, you look now and Diaz is kind of an anomaly. You don't see many teams with a player like him. What, uh, what separates him as a catcher and why do you think he is deserving of being an all-star this summer? Well, I'd make a comparison to defensemen in hockey. It, it mm. takes a while for defensemen to emerge on, on both ends of the eye, especially if they're two way defensemen and, mm. and mature and really get the best out of their ability. And I think for catchers, a lot of times it, it doesn't, you know, fully occur. I mean, there's outliers. I mean, mm. Rushman is certainly in, in Baltimore. You know, flashing back to when JT Romuto arrived with the Marlins, I mean, they're certainly outliers. But more often than not, it's late 20s into the 30s that a catcher fully is able to, you know, be strong in terms of calling a game, um, framing pitches, blocking, and then contribute if they have that skill set offensively. Diaz has always had it, and mm. I think he's finally found a comfort level where he's putting it all together. Uh, we've seen flashes of it two years ago. Uh, he hit, uh, I think, 17 home runs from June 1st forward and, and hit close to 300 after a really slow start. And he was rewarded with a three-year contract by the Rockies. And I think mm. he, he, he has a lot of pride and he has uh, you know, great care to his game and about the, the guys he plays with. And I think maybe he put too much pressure on himself last year after signing that contract, but it's all come together so far uh, this year. And, you know, on a personal level, I'm thrilled for him because he's, he's a great guy. He's a guy that, you know, brings great energy every day. And just like I said about McMahon, he wants to play every day. And, and lately he has, because even if he's not catching, if he gets a day off from catching, uh, Buddy has used him as a DH most of the time. The best Colorado, current Colorado player uh, that you would love to have in the broadcast booth with you for one game, if they're out for whatever, and you get to put him in the booth with you, who who do you pick? Well, I'm I'm here in Cincinnati now, and mm. the guy I would that, that jumps to mind immediately because he's he's got uh, an enormous personality. He's a, a super bright guy. He's very interesting. I've had him on my own. Uh, podcast mm. uh, very recently, and that's Brent Suter. 
Hmm. So Brent Suter will be able to do a lot of different things when his playing career is done, and I'm sure there'll be a lot of people knocking on his door to enter the broadcasting world. I like it. Um, who would folks, uh, Rockies fans, be surprised to learn is kind of like behind the scenes, just one of the best player coaches or best veteran guys on this Colorado team this year? Who do you think it is? Well, I think Mike Moustakis, when you talk hmm. about veterans, I think Mike Moustakis uh, – you know, maybe beneath the radar, certainly on a national level, because the Rockies are, are not getting um, much national attention because they're they're not uh, a, a great team. Mm-hmm. So uh, people may not realize this. I mean, Mike Moustakas, who's hit well over 200 home runs in his career and has had a great run, is now kind of uh, you know a senior statesman, elder statesman, uh, a guy that plays occasionally as a starter, will pinch hit here and there, and he's done a nice job in both of those. Uh, capacities, but he's also done a really good job in the clubhouse mentoring young players, and the Rockies have several of those, and and just kind of being a a voice they can lean on. I've seen him out around the cage, uh, whether it's talking hitting or talking mental approach with guys like Nolan Jones, guys like Brenton Doyle. Uh, I've seen that quite frequently, and and I've heard from uh, the coaching staff how much he's done. So that's a guy I would point to, Chase. I like it. Um, in terms of Chris Bryant, what is the latest? Do we see him this week, do you think? I don't know if you see him this week. He is with the club. He, he rejoined uh, the Rockies in Atlanta. He was not mm-hmm. with us in Boston. And, uh, you know, he's working his way back from, you know, a heel uh, bruise. Uh, I know he's swinging the bat a little bit um, and, uh, you know, just trying to, you know, take steps from there. So the fact that he's doing baseball activities and the fact that he's with the club that's a positive so you know is it you know later in the week when the rockies return home uh, or at some point on that uh lengthy homestand uh hopefully yes if you get a fully healthy chris bryant a fully healthy charlie blackman from the beginning of the season to now how different do you think the season looks to this point uh, i think the rockies are still short on talent uh, mm. you know and it's not a it's not to disparage either one of those guys i think chris bryant is gives you a, a you know still both those guys give you professional at bats mm. the rockies are deficient when it first of all offensively deficient in terms of hitting the ball over the wall mm. and though charlie blackman and chris bryant have a history in the past when they wore younger man's shoes mm. of hitting a fair amount of home runs i don't know if it is fair to say oh they're still of the ability um, to hit that many. Now, Chris Bryant's younger, certainly, than, than Charlie, and you'd like to, and he's being paid to you know, be a middle-of-the-order guy, and they need production out of Chris Bryant. I don't know if he's a 30-homer guy anymore. Um, mm. I, I really don't, and, and Charlie certainly is not. Um, those guys would help, but, mm. but to sit here and, and play that card, I, I won't do that. I think that's disingenuous. Um, I think that the, the Rockies have a ways to go. I think they know they have a ways to go offensively they do have a system that um, has a lot of young and exciting talent that's probably uh, more of them a couple of years away Hmm. but but guys that that hell have a chance to impact uh, the power column the run production column which is uh, so desperately needed and that's not even going into the pitching side that you know the pitching side has been decimated with injury and and needs like like just about every team you, you continually try to upgrade 
your your rotation and, and everywhere else because you can never have, as the adage goes, enough pitching. No, you cannot. I mean, just look at the Braves. I mean, they're still in first, but like dropping like arms, haven't had Max Freed, Kyle Wright for the majority of the year. You look at it and you're just like, next man up. It's like, okay, Bryce Elder, um, yeah. I guess it's going to be our most uh, reliable arm uh, to this point in the year. You can never have enough uh, starting pitching. That is for sure. Well, you mentioned well, I, know, the, I was going to say, Chase, I know you're, you're from down in, in mm. Atlanta, that area. Um, you know, Max Reed's going to be back in the not too distant future, mm. which is which is going to be a big lift with his mm. ability. Number one, his work ethic. Number two, uh, to help out guys like Bryce Elder and you know a thirty-nine-year-old Charlie Morton. So yeah. uh, they they do have a little bit of help on the way. I hope so, and we'll see. Soroka's pitching pretty well in AAA, and he he's is. just a great he story. Is. If he can figure it out and he can get back, I mean, that would be that would be awesome. And then we'll see what happens with Strider. Spencer Strider's six point something ERA the last six starts. He struggled of late, so I hope um, that gets ironed out too um, on the Strider front. Um, when it comes to the uh, the farm, and we'll we'll end here. Um, when you look at Jordan Beck. Uh, obviously a high profile pick i've watched him i've watched a lot of jordan beckett bats in my life <laughs> drew when you look at what his power is when he got drafted by the rockies my immediate thought was oh he's going to be up sooner or later he's going to be great like there's just some some strong brad hop vibes there like i could see him being really really good uh right away uh-huh. in colorado is it jordan beck is the most exciting guy um in this farm system in the outfield power department front or is it and I don't know how to pronounce his last or his first name. Is it Juan Keel? Is is that it for him? Juan Keel. Juan Keel. Yes, he just got promoted to Double A. Um, he's playing really, really well. Um, you mentioned that a, the couple guys might be a couple years away. Is he kind of the leader there in terms of Rockies farm potential stars down the road? And uh, what what do you think of those guys and when they could be up uh, for Colorado? Well, it's a great question, and and I think through experience um, you understand and, and you follow the game chase uh, obviously very closely in that you know you can point to a guy based on draft position or international signing bonus and say this guy's going to be a star and maybe mm-hmm. early on they perform that way and then they hit a bump in the road which isn't always the worst thing in the world in the world quite frankly because baseball uh, everyone's going to hit a bump in the road yep. and you want to be able to deal with that and oftentimes uh, you want to see uh, young players have to deal with that in the minor leagues uh, because it's going to come at the, at the big league level if they're fortunate enough to get there. You know, Zach Bean was, was a, an extremely high pick, and and mm. he's had a bump in the road. Uh, he, you know, he, he had a great Arizona Fall League last year, but he's not performed well so far in the Eastern League in Double A. I think that he still looks like a tremendous prospect. He's got to clean up uh, pitch selection uh, at, at the plate. And going back to the guys you mentioned. Uh, Jordan Beck and, and Yankeel Fernandez, along with uh, Adele Amador and Sterling Thompson, have led that Spokane uh, team to a really good first half. Fernandez was just moved to Hartford to Double A. I would imagine that's a possibility for Beck and for Amador as this uh, season continues to unfold and the summer, um, you know, moves into July. Uh, th- all those guys um, have been impactful so far and hopefully will continue to be and once you get to double a again i think you know this chase you can move pretty quickly a lot yes. of guys jump from double a right to the big leagues and, and don't necessarily stop in michael harris just did that last year for the braves yeah and mm-hmm. and, and, and listen under alex and mm-hmm. the braves are not 
um, are not afraid to um, are not afraid to uh, to make a move. Yeah. And, um, so uh, it'd be very aggressive. So again, going back to uh, Fernandez, the numbers are really exciting. Uh, I was with my uh, my son down at our uh, the Boca Chica, the, the Rockies Boca Chica complex. Mm-hmm. And uh, this was a few years ago, and I saw him play as a 17-year-old along with Adel Amador, and they were really impressive. So um, uh, I'm excited about those guys, and specifically to, to the Tennessee Vol, uh, Jordan Beck. He's done a great job. He's athletic. Tied with home runs, I think, right? Wasn't he and Fernandez tied at one point? They're yeah, both I, raking I believe in. they w. are. I think some around 17 home yeah. runs. So I was asking uh, one of our – I was actually asking Billy Schmidt, our, our – general manager in the last mm. couple of days about him and he, he may eventually move off center field to a corner outfield spot yeah. uh, but you know they like what they've seen so far certainly he's got uh you know he's got an impact bat and you can't have enough talent just like we were talking earlier mm. you can't have enough pitching absolutely well drew you mentioned the podcast what uh can the good folks check out from that uh upcoming soon we can also listen watch you on the rockies broadcast team each and every day it feels like because baseball is just always on there's always a if you're not looking i guarantee there's a there's an mlb game on at some point but what do you what do you want to plug here as we wrap up today uh well we start a series in cincinnati yeah my, mm-hmm. my podcast comes out once a week it uh it comes out every uh, Thursday morning. It's got a catchy name, so you mm. probably have to jot this down. It's called the Drew Goodman Podcast. I'm familiar with that kind of uh, yeah. name. Uh, <laughs> um, and um, this past week, we're still kind of talking Nuggets uh, mm. stuff with the World Championship. So Jerry Schemmel, who I used to do the Nuggets uh, on television back, uh, you know, for about a decade, a while, mm. a while ago, and uh, Jerry Schemmel did their games on radio for a long time he's doing uh he's been on the rockies radio side also for for a period of time so we we reminisced and and uh, did that and i think nolan jones i'm going to try to grab nolan here coming up but uh, we're in year four so uh i i have an interview every week and kind of talk about what's going on not only with the rockies but uh around uh the sports world in general so give it a listen there you go drew Great meeting you. Thank you so much for giving me the time uh, this afternoon. Safe travels, sir. And uh, we'll have to check back in again soon. Anytime, Chase. Good luck to you. and Thanks for having me. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.